There's a, a tray table with bland hospital food, a bowl of lentils and a cloud of mashed potatoes. The air mattress molded to her body, it keeps inflating and shifting the position of her limbs every 10 minutes or so. There's an arcade of machines, lights flashing, bells and whistles echoing out into the hallway. But it doesn't wake the little seven-pounder in my arms. She's about 12 hours old, snuggled there in between my my hand in my chest. My other hand takes me some 6,000 miles away to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I had just re-downloaded Twitter on my phone and was seeing in real time the unthinkable devastation. It was surreal to have a brand new baby born in a hospital while some 6,000 miles away, brand new babies were being born in subway stations, doubling as bomb shelters. But uh, some weeks later, it's late at night, and I'm up with the baby, and I see more images from Ukraine. There's a video of people trying to flee from a particular city, heading west toward Poland or something, and there are these small fuel-efficient cars packed with an entire family and all of their belongings trying to, to get through this road, but it's closed. There are rows and rows of landmines. And this first fuel-efficient small vehicle, it, it drives up slowly to the rows of landmines, and it begins to thread its way through the landmines. And I'm watching on my phone, holding my breath, waiting for the boom. But somehow they miraculously skirt through the landmines unscathed. Well, then comes the next car, another small fuel-efficient vehicle packed with an entire family and all their belongings. And they drive up to the rows of landmines and the driver exits the vehicle. He he hops out and, and he walks up to one of the landmines and he proceeds to pick it up with his hands from the asphalt. And then he walks it over to the side of the road delicately and attentively. Now, at any moment, this thing could blow. Too much pressure, too much force applied, and boom. He sets it down on the side of the road there in a ditch, and he turns around and heads back for more. Unbelievable, right? Like one misstep, one bump, one squeeze too tight, and boom. But instead of skirting around the landmines in the road, he handles each delicately and attentively. And that today is what we're trying to do with our passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy as a whole is a powder keg just ready to blow. And you know, we could skirt around the issues and try and thread our four tires through the rows of landmines, but I think it's best to do what Jeff did last week and actually deal with the landmines delicately and attentively, even if things could explode at any moment. Today we continue with our letter 
from Paul. Paul is a missionary. He is a church leader, an apostle, a church planter, a preacher, a teacher, the genius of the faith. But it wasn't always so. At one point, he was an enemy of the faith, persecuting the church. He himself was a killer of Christians who then experiences radical transformation to become a killer Christian. And he's writing to his young protege in the faith, Timothy. Now, Timothy was a child of a mixed marriage. His mother was Jewish and his father was Greek. His hometown is Lystra, there in modern-day Turkey. And it must have been on one of Paul's first missionary tours through Lystra that Timothy became a Christian. And he grew and grew so much in faith that when, when Paul returned to Lystra, he invited Timothy to come and join him on his travels. They became close, loyal, trusted, and, and greatly loved companions. But like any good leader, Timothy was not always brave, and he was full of insecurity, especially later on, out on his own in a place like Ephesus. But Paul encourages him to fight the good fight of the true faith. Now, chapter 1 talked about false teachers and all sorts of sin and church fights. And now here we come to the landmines of chapter 2. Government, politics, race, gender identity, and roles. So let's uh, pray for God's wisdom and guidance before we even begin to attempt this. So Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come here and, and give us your wisdom. God, I've prepared some notes. I've studied really hard. Um, I know that we have shown up today to study the Word, to, to be shaped and changed by you. But God, we want to hear from you, not just from a human being. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take whatever, whatever words here are spoken, and I pray that you would replace them with what you want to say that you would speak to our hearts. Maybe, you know, God, we've come to the text and we've come to the Bible and we've come to church with all these preconceived ideas that maybe people have told us along the way or we've figured out along the way, but I pray that we would come to this piece of scripture today fresh and new with open eyes and open hearts and open minds. Not so much that our, our minds fall out, that we're so open-minded, but God, that you would rewire our brains to be holy and loving and faithful people who obey you and love you and actually make a difference in this world. So God, would the, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, it must have been about like 10 years ago or so, we were at the Boys and Girls Club as a church. And it was a chilly Wednesday night, and we were having church service. That's what we used to do. There was some event going on inside, and so we were outside. Now, I can't remember what book of the Bible we were going through, but it was verse by verse. But I discovered on this evening the absolute nugget, the flawless and foolproof, perfect method to get people to leave your church. I mean, this was, this was gold, like how to stunt church growth. I should have done a TED Talk. How to piss people off. How to nearly kill your church 101, all while being loving and biblical and delicate 
and attentive. I was just trying to be faithful to the text. And the verse, it, it sounded a lot like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Well, that, that, that sounds awfully nice. Until you realize that the word all means all. Pray for all people. Every kind, each one, every single one included. All meaning no one not included. And so on a chilly Wednesday night at the Boys and Girls Club, I broke us up into various groups. And I said, all right, you guys over here, I want you to pray for families in our community. Pray for them. I, over here, I want you guys to pray for those who are, are struggling with drugs and alcohol in our community. Uh, you guys over here, I want you to pray for those with, with chronic pain who are suffering in that way. Uh, back there, I want you guys to pray for uh, sexual offenders. Um, and over here, I want you guys to, um, you know, also pray for their families and their victims and all that. And over here, I want you to pray for murderers and their victims and their families. Oh, in the back over there, I want you to pray for hate groups, neo-Nazis, the KKK, and the like. How to nearly kill your church, 101. Do what it says. Pray for all people. Now, we, we pray for them not because they deserve it, but because they need it. And when we do so, we realize that we don't deserve it either. And maybe we really need it too. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people, those at Macy's and those on Megan's Law. Ask God to help them intercede or plead on their behalf and give thanks for them? Well, it's one thing to ask God to help them. Like, oh yeah, God, help them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Help them fall into a pit and die. Um, or, or yeah, 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 I'll intercede on their behalf too for, you know, skunks to infest their living spaces and maggots to stream through their faucets, but to give thanks for them. Whew. <laughs> now that is radical. But we pray for them, not because they deserve it, but because they need it. And in doing so, we realize that maybe we don't deserve it either, and we might really need it too. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority, whether you love them or you hate them, whether you agree with them or disagree with them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone, politicians, priests, plumbers, and pedophiles, to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, bringing them together, making things right, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone, medical doctors, magicians, maids, and murderers. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. And the truth is this, God saves sinners and only sinners. Yeah. 
God saves sinners and only sinners. And I don't say this lightly. The mental and physical and social and spiritual anguish that human beings inflict upon others, it feels unforgivable. And I don't know if anyone can adequately or absolutely understand your pain. But maybe God does. And God's capacity to heal and forgive and restore and be just is beyond all comprehension. But it's clearly proved and paid for, as it says, Jesus gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And everyone is a really big word. And sometimes we wish it weren't so. But because of God's grace, that includes us too. So pray for all people, all, every kind, each one, every single one included. And I know, I know this is not easy. For some, I can only imagine how difficult this must be. You know, uh, in Timothy's day, in this letter's original context, Paul's asking Timothy to do something really hard. He's asking Timothy to pray for Caesar, the Roman emperor, specifically for Nero, who would illuminate his dinner garden parties with Christians doused in tar and set ablaze. It's where we get the word Roman candles from. Yeah, pr pray for him, Paul instructs. Little does he know, Paul himself will be executed at the hands of Nero. Yeah, pray for him. Now that is radical. That, that's like countercultural, and it's at the heart of what this minority group, ragtag Jesus followers were all about. You know, sometimes when we come to Scripture, it's easy to forget that these letters and these Gospels, inspired by God, in fact, God's Word, were passed around house churches. Not mega churches, house churches. Small, seemingly insignificant groups of diverse people. They were not controllers or dictators of society. They were seemingly irrelevant groups. You know, by the early part of the second century, so about 40 or 50 years after the death of Paul, Christian groups could be found in perhaps only 40 or 50 cities throughout the Roman Empire. They gathered in small groups, some numbering several dozen, others numbering maybe in, in a few hundreds. But the Romans, they viewed the early Christian movement as a superstition or a fringe political group. Weird, illegal, and secret. Even cannibals feasting on the blood and the body of their savior, some messiah figure. Sure, it was sweeping and it was an explosive movement, but it probably amounted to less than, you know, 50,000 people in an empire of 60 million. But knowing this background, I think, is important for us to understand Paul's words and his context to Timothy here as it relates to life and worship in house churches. 
verse 8 says, In every place of worship, whether they were meeting in a home or a shop or out in some field, in every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God. Let me see the men, holy hands lifted up to God. Nice. Looking good. Some of you were flexing, too. I, in every place, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God. All right, sounds easy. Oh, free from anger and controversy. But that's not the manly, male, masculine stereotype dominating the ancient Roman world. And that's not the manly, male, masculine stereotype that we're used to today. I mean, Rambo does not surrender and is not dependent. His path is marked by anger and controversy. But to pray with holy hands lifted up, that's a sign of surrender to God. That's a sign of vulnerability. That, that's what people are doing in worship when they raise their hands up. It's a visible expression of dependence on God. It's like a little kid lifting their arms up to their mom or to their dad. It's surrender and it's dependence. Not, not shaking angry fists at enemies, but raising holy hands to God. You may not look like Rambo, but you look a whole lot more like Jesus. And in fact, neurologists claim that every time you resist acting upon your anger, you're actually rewiring your brain to be more loving and calm. And in the ancient Roman world, especially in a place where Timothy is in Ephesus, surrender to God and dependence on him, rewiring your brain to be more calm and loving is essential. Instead of anger and controversy, pray and pursue peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Verse 9 says, and I want women. Where are you at, ladies? That was subpar, mediocre. <laughs> and I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should be decent and appropriate. Wear, they should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. All right, see you guys. It's been good. I'll, I'll resign right now before you start throwing stuff at me. But this is a landmine if I ever saw one. But I think Paul's point is this. Girl, you look good already. Amen. Fine with a capital F. So stop spending so much time chasing that Gucci, Versace, Fettuccine, Rigatoni life. <laughs> and maybe spend more time doing something beautiful for God and becoming beautiful by doing it. According to a survey of a thousand U.S. women, the average U.S. woman has at least 148 items of clothing in her closet. 148 compared to men who have seven. No, I'm just playing. I don't even know. Like, probably 14 and half of them are full of holes. But a woman 
with her 148 items of clothing at least, wears around only 10%. Only 10% of her clothes. And considers 21% to be unwearable, 33% too tight, 24% too loose, and I guess 22% just right. But she only wears about 10% of them. That said, girl, you already look good. Fine with a capital F. And I know that the, the English is terrible, you know, like, but no one looks more good than when they do good. It's like with the men. You don't have to buy into some stereotype. Everyone is already impressed. And no one looks more good than when they do good. Now, I don't think Paul, and I'm not up here trying to say like, oh, we should squash creativity and passion for style or design or whatever, but is your life, is your life about drawing attention to you and your updo and your bling bling, or is it about drawing attention to God? Like I said, everyone's already impressed. Verse 11, women should learn quietly and submissively. <laughs> Woo! Landmine if I ever saw one. Women should learn quietly and submissively. Yeah, this is the beginning. These, these 11 and 12 are, are some of the most controversial and hotly debated topics and misunderstood passages in all of Scripture. And I'll, I'll uh, preface it by this. Um, I want to come to this with humility. Um, I could be totally wrong, and that's okay. I'm going to offer an interpretation that I think takes the biblical account seriously. It takes the context and the background very seriously. Uh, I'm going to look at the grammar as well, but I could be totally wrong, and that's okay, uh, because you could be totally wrong too, and that's okay, and we can still be friends, and you don't have to like leave the church or, or like kill me or give me death threats or anything like that. Um, that's fine. We can still be friends. But we're going to try our hardest to look at this with new eyes, fresh eyes, not just what someone told us at some point, though it may be important. I want to just look at this fresh and new. So it begins like this. Women should learn. Wow. Stop right there. Can't even get past three words. Women should learn. Wow. That is radical. Women should learn. Remember, Paul is writing to Timothy in an ancient first century Roman context where women were often considered as second-rate citizens. The fact that this is a positive statement, women should, and the fact that they should learn without restraint is radical. It's a liberating departure from the Jewish view that women should not learn the law. It says women should learn quietly and submissively, period. Women should learn quietly and submissively, period. To whom? Women should learn quietly and submissively. To whom? Well, it doesn't say. <laughs> but, but maybe in our male-centric, egocentric world, we just automatically say, well, well yo, women should learn quietly and submissively from, from the men or from their husbands. But it doesn't say that. It says women should learn quietly and submissively, period. I think it's more plausible that this refers to their attitude as learners in submission to God. Oh. 
or, or to the gospel, which, of course, would be true for men as well. Women should learn quietly and submissively, not as a loud mouth or an arrogant know-it-all, but, but quietly and submissively as any disciple, regardless of gender or race or status or whatever, should. Women should learn quietly and submissively, just like the men. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Oh, but Paul. Oh, but Paul. What of the women leaders like Esther and Deborah and Mary? What of Priscilla? She's clearly an authoritative teacher who, and I quote, more accurately explained, that is, taught the word of God to Apollos, a male church leader. And not only that, she was a house church leader and host. Let's get that next slide up so you can, you can track with me all along. Oh, I know. It's just like a whole list of people, right? What of Lydia, another house church leader? What of Chloe and Apphia? What of Nympha, who helped lead a church in her home? What of Shira, the female builder and architect? What of the five daughters of Zelophedad? What of Junia, the woman that Paul calls an apostle. And he also spent jail time with her. What of the prophetesses, Huldah, Anna, Miriam, and Isaiah's wife? What of the four daughters of Philip? What of Phoebe, who Paul calls a house church leader, a benefactor, a minister? Paul actually refers to Phoebe as a diakonos, the same term he uses for male ministers because he apparently regards her as a leader who is well-suited and worthy of doing important tasks at the church in Rome on his behalf. So if, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. These are some amazing women, amazing women. So if women teach and have authority throughout the Old and New Testaments, how do we understand this verse? I mean, our interpretation of this verse should not contradict the teaching of Paul and the life of Paul. And it should not contradict the entire New Testament and especially the example and teaching of Jesus. In the Gospels, Jesus never suggests that women's roles were supposed to be secondary or limited in the community of faith. So then how are we to understand Paul's words then? I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Well, remember the context. Paul is writing to Timothy in Ephesus on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And one of the main things that we know about the religion in Ephesus is that the main religion, the biggest temple, the most famous shrine, was a female-only cult. The temple of Artemis, that's her Greek name. The Romans called her Diana. The temple was a massive structure that dominated the area and was served by priests who were all and only women. 
The female priests, they ruled the show and kept the men in their place in a domineering fashion. How domineering? Well, if men wanted to join, they would have to, uh, well, endure or rather suffer ritual castration. Ouch. And think, if you were writing a letter like Paul to someone in a small new religious movement with a base in Ephesus where this pagan female cult is dominantly running dangerously rampant, and if you wanted to say that because of the gospel of Jesus, the old ways of organizing male and female roles had to be rethought from top to bottom with one new defining feature, that, of be, that being that women were encouraged to study and learn and take a leadership role, you might want to avoid any sort of misconception or giving the wrong impression. People might wonder, is Paul saying that women should be trained up so that Christianity becomes a cult like Artemis, where the women do all the leading and keep the men in line? That seems to me what verse 12 is saying no to. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. And now, I don't often do this, but I think that there is a bit of an issue with the English NLT translation of the Greek verse here. The word that we see translated as authority, authenteo, I think is better translated as control. Or, better yet, like a control-freaky attitude and behavior. But you're never going to see that in a, like a translation. But uh, let me show you what I mean. Authenteo gets translated as domineer in the Latin Vulgate and the New English Bible, and as usurp authority in the Geneva and King James Bibles. I think that those translations might be better, and here's why. The only time that authenteo shows up in the New Testament is here, in this one verse. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Paul always uses a different word, exousia, when he's talking about authority. So this is different. Why, why, is it, why is it translated then as authority? I don't know. It's an entirely different word with an entirely different meaning. And I know all this might sound like nerdy and bookish, but I think it's important for us to understand Paul's words here. Paul is not referring to normative authority. This word is never used to describe how a church leader correctly behaves toward another person. In fact, when a person does this authenteo, freaky, control-freaky attitude and behavior to another person, they are a domineering master, taking up arms, that is, weapons against others, using force, often to inflict some kind of injury or dishonor. Okay, so I get that. You know, like Paul's saying, like, I don't want Christian women to be like the domineering women of Artemis. Okay, uh, but it says, I do not let women teach men or have this control freaky attitude over them. What about that teach part? Well, it's very possible that the verb didasco, meaning to teach, is linked here with the verb authenteo. It's, called, it's what's called a hindiatus, two words that are joined by a construction, a conjunction to make a single point. It sounds really technical, but it just means a two for one. 
Two words that are combined to make one point. And we see this all throughout Scripture. We see this in ancient literature. We see it in modern-day literature. We see it in everyday talk. I know you guys are really big readers of Shakespeare. It's all over the place in Shakespeare. Two things to make one point. For instance, he came despite the rain and the weather. It just means one thing. Rainy weather. Whether it was truth or reality, two things to mean one thing, true reality. The cat was nice and warm. We know cats aren't nice, so clearly this just means they're nicely warm. The Las Vegas Raiders are ruined and broken. It just means one thing. They're totally destroyed. Come hell or high water, two things just mean it's tough. Two things to make a single point. Now, this happens all throughout the Bible, and I could be totally wrong, but I think that's very possibly what is happening here. So a better interpretation might be like, I do not let women teach or have a control-freaky attitude over the men. It might mean something more like, don't teach men in a domineering way. Two things to make a single point. So let's put it all together, given the context and the grammatical and the biblical basis. I think it makes much more sense to translate the interpretation and the meaning of this verse as, I do not let women teach men in a domineering way so that they control, domineer, literally and figuratively castrate men like the pagan cult of Artemis does. Let them listen quietly, or you could translate that as undisturbed. And while many I respect and call friends like totally disagree with me about this interpretation, I think Paul is saying, like Jesus in verse 10, that, that women must have the space and the ability to study and learn in their own way. It's not so that they muscle in and seize complete control like the Artemis cult, but so that men and women alike can develop whatever gifts of teaching and leading and leadership that God is giving them. Verse 13 says, For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved, not as in salvation, but probably better translated as kept safe. But women will be kept safe through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. I thought we were through, but here's another landmine. What in the world is Paul's point here about Adam and Eve? This is, this is cryptic. But remember, Paul's basic thrust in this passage is to insist that, that, that women, just like men, should be allowed to learn and to study and not be kept uneducated. The story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, I think it makes the point. Look at what happened when Eve was deceived. The serpent talks. Crazy, I know. But then Eve responds and speaks with him. And Adam says, nothing, he, nothing. He's just chilling there. <laughs> and actually, because Adam doesn't say a word, Eve gets duped and tricked by the serpent. I think Paul's point here is that women need and deserve just as much as men do to learn. But the context, right? First Timothy, Ephesus, false teaching, weird stuff going on, the Greek goddess Artemis, 
Artemis was extremely popular throughout the ancient world, especially in what was known as her hometown, Ephesus, because she was thought to protect women in the most dangerous of all endeavors, childbirth. The joy of having a baby in the ancient world always was met with the terrifying fact that complications with childbirth, it lowered life expectancy of women to 25 to 30 years of age. But apparently, Artemis, this Greek goddess, promised to protect women in childbirth. Artemis Savior, as she was called. And so women would wear necklaces, and jewelry and fancy clothes, especially during labor, to signal their devotion to Artemis. Hmm. Kind of like what Paul tells the women not to worry about in verse 9. Even more, Paul corrects in verse 15 the very thing the false goddess Artemis was famous for safety during childbirth. But women will be saved or kept safe through the process of childbearing, not by wearing necklaces and jewelry and fancy clothes, but if they continue to live in faith and love and holiness, etc. Verse 15 is weird, but I think Paul here is correcting the method for obtaining protection in childbirth. It's not about devotion to Artemis by wearing fine clothes and necklaces and jewelry. It's through devotion to God and faith in Jesus. There's, there's been a whole lot that we've tried to weave our way through today. And I think instead we've learned to just pick up the landmines. You see, I think Paul is, is writing a letter to a specific house church in a specific place in Ephesus at a specific time in the first century ancient Roman world for a specific set of reasons to address false teaching and harmful power dynamics creeping into the church. And you know, in our sin and in our brokenness, we as human beings have a knack. We are so good at trying to use people and control them. But Christians should be different. Both men and women are called to submit to Jesus and to one another in mutual service under Christ. We are to be different. You may call it radical or countercultural, but we are to be different, especially in how we go about things like government, politics, race, gender, and identity roles. We are first and foremost to lead with love. We are to live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity, not anger and controversy, but by the actions of love and truth and faith and holiness and modesty, even if it's weird, even if it's difficult. For Jesus gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And who are we to put parameters on that? And I know I'm not very good at hiding my hand. I have like no poker face whatsoever, so I'll just say it. I don't think this passage is a general ban prohibiting women from teaching and having authority in the church. And now you can totally disagree with me. You can totally disagree with me, and that's okay. And you don't have to leave the church, and we can still be friends. You know why? Because we're adults. (laughs) 
A landmine can't tell the difference. A landmine can't tell the difference between a soldier and a civilian. A woman, a child, a grandma going out to collect firewood to make dinner. Once peace is declared, the landmine does not recognize that peace. The landmine is eternally prepared to take victims. But may it not be so with the landmines we face in culture and the hot button issues in our path. When we learn to delicately and attentively deal with the landmines, and not just skirt around them, but delicately and attentively deal with them by listening, by learning, by sharing and teaching and growing, maybe then we can be a major force for good. Maybe then we can learn to uplift subjugated voices and marginalized people to more fully hear and see and experience God's voice and purposes in our world. What if we weren't defined by the world's stereotypes and cultural paradigms? What if we were instead shaped first by God and His Word and His way, becoming and creating passionate world changers for Jesus? Creating and becoming passionate world changers for Jesus. But I'll tell you what, only praying for yourself and the people you like won't do it. Only praying for your own political preference won't do it. Only stewing in anger and controversy won't do it. Only shopping till you drop in won't do it. Only controlling, usurping, and domineering won't do it. Only listening to half the human race and silencing the other won't do it. Instead, we listen and learn and share and teach and grow. We pursue peace and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. And, and in doing so, at the end of all your days, maybe there's a tray table with bland hospital food. A bowl of lentils and a cloud of mashed potatoes. Maybe the air mattress molded to your body keeps inflating and shifting your limbs every 10 minutes or so. Maybe there's an arcade of machines with lights flashing and bells and whistles echoing out into the hallway. Maybe it's then that you can look back and realize, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. Amen.